From First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, you're listening to a message from the series Traction, Getting Past Your Past. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Last weekend, Julie and I took Brooke back to college. She's a Hawkeye. And so... Um, that wasn't a call for a, a identity moment there. I just was stating the facts, all right? Um, and so we were over there in Iowa City most of Saturday helping her move in. A few days before that, as we were helping her pack, I was just kind of ruminating over this week's message. And I asked her, I said, Brooke, have you ever heard this quote, this phrase, you may call it a simple quip, uh, And then I said, here's how it goes. I want to know if you've ever heard this. I heard it growing up, but she's in a different generation, and so I didn't want to assume that she'd heard it. It goes like this, that they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. She says to me, no, Dad, I've never heard that. I said, well, do you kind of get the sense of it? She goes, yeah, it kind of means like someone so up there that they're not any good down here. It's like, yeah, you're a genius, you got it, you know. So I thought I'd just kind of gauge you guys as well. How many of you have heard that phrase, that they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good? Raise your hand, would you? All right, so it seems that most of you have not. Would you just say, say, I've never heard that, will you raise your hand? I just want to kind of see. Yeah, it's interesting. So you're in Brooks' category that maybe is not something you've heard of, but you kind of get the sense of it as well. It, it seems to portray this person, man or woman, that's thinking about things up in the spiritual realm to the degree that they're just, of not, they're just not really any value where it really matters. Well, regardless of any previous hearing of it, I need to tell you that I completely disagree with that statement. I actually would say to you personally, I don't think that person exists. I think we've made up that person to make ourselves feel better about our carnality, our momentary earthliness, our sense of of, uh, physical grounding that we sometimes can't get beyond. And so we've kind of made this quote up, I've heard it for decades, to just try to make ourselves feel better, to appease us. Yes, I couldn't disagree more. In fact, the people I've met that are quite heavenly minded prove to actually be of great earthly good. Those that are thinking about eternal matters, those that are dwelling on the glories of our citizenship with Christ in heaven actually are the ones who on this earth live life to the fullest. I actually think our problem is the exact opposite of that misleading quote. It isn't that we're too heavenly minded, it's that we're not heavenly minded enough. C.S. Lewis said it well. I quote, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that we have become so ineffective in this one. And so today in week six of our current series called Traction, I want to discover with you how Traction necessarily requires a very heavenly-minded thinking and orientation. And when we don't think with a heavenly orientation, when we're not spiritually minded, we will find ourselves continually stuck, spinning our wheels, gaining no traction. That's when we fall prey to what I call the trap of wrong thinking which is, and I'll define it for you, processing things through earthly affections, philosophies, and perspectives. Now, I'll back this up with Scripture in a moment. 
But the trap of wrong thinking is processing things through earthly affections, philosophies, and perspectives, and thinking that will move us spiritually, when really all it does is cause our wheels to spin, when what's required to gain traction is is a heavenly mindset, a heavenly philosophy, spiritual perspective. When we don't think in that way, we sabotage our spiritual growth. We settle for a small-minded, physically grounded, carnally-rooted journey when God has actually called us to one that is, as Ephesians says, seated in the heavenlies, in union with Christ, in step with the Spirit, focused on Jesus, one that is bound up in every way with the lover of our soul. I hope today that you'll leave convinced with me that it isn't that we're thinking too much about eternity, but rather the opposite. We think too little of it. And we've settled our minds on the wrong kingdom too much. That's why many of us are stuck. To see this biblically, will you turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me? Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first four verses, and I want to just be very transparent with you. We'll look at the first four this week. Next week, we'll tackle five through about 17 in part two of this idea of wrong thinking, but it's going to have a a different title and be another one of these things that keeps us stuck. We're going to be in Colossians 3 for two weeks is the point. And I want to just keep these first four verses in mind this morning as as we think about spiritual and heavenly thinking. And understand that one of the reasons we don't make traction is because we fall into the trap of wrong thinking, which is thinking that's too earthbound. It's it's philosophies and affections and perspectives that are rooted here in this temporal existence. I hope I can show you this this morning. It has been weighing on me for a number of weeks. And so I'm kind of rowing this boat of of falling short of this with you, all right? So you're not alone. Will you join me this morning in just trying to uh, put some strength to the oars of, of seeing this in Scripture and then kind of being under its conviction with me? As we soak in God's Word, I would just ask you to take out the response card in front of you. Would you do that, all of us just together? Just take the response card, not the feedback card, but there should be a response card there in front of you. And just keep it on your Bible, because I'm going to ask you as we go along, and at the end to just jot down one or two areas in which you want to think with eternal perspective, not temporal. You want to think heavenly, not earthly. And I think the Holy Spirit will nudge you at different points in the message about that. So just keep it handy. you got a pen there. If you're in rows where there's no chair in front of you, just kind of reach to the row in front of you, grab one. And let's just be willing to respond to the Holy Spirit as we kind of unpack this text. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Here's what the Bible would say to us you'll see this theme just emerging quickly. Verse 1, If you then have been raised with Christ, and by the way, the word if there is easily translated since, they both work. It's a statement of fact. It's not a question. It's simply since you've been raised with Christ, or if now you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's back up 30,000 feet, can we? Here's what the text kind of lays out for us from a large overview, first of all. It goes in the simple structure of why, what, and why. He makes a statement here that we've been raised with Christ, then he tells us what to do, and then he explains why we can do that. So do you see that in in kind of a general fashion? We've been raised with Christ, and so here's the two imperatives, seek and set, and then the word four in verse three says, here's why you can do that. So just kind of understand, first of all, from a high-level view, the first four verses follow this simple structure, why, what, and why. Say it with me, why, what, and why. Simple Bible study. You could use these words as well. You could use fact, act, and fact. He states the fact that we've been raised with Christ, and then he provides for us an action to take, correct? What are those two words? Seek and set. 
And then he gives us more facts, more theological groundings for these actions. So that's kind of the high-level view. So let's dive into these divisions now. And I want to start with the middle act or the what. And I want to begin with the two imperatives that really form the, the, the real meat of these first four verses. Those two imperatives are the word seek and the word set. In fact, you should circle them in your Bible. And let me just kind of unpack these for you for a little bit, can I? The word seek speaks to a pursuit or a, a striving. The word set seeks to a position or a concentration. So he says, seek what is above. He's talking about our pursuits, kind of our, our aim. But when he says, set your minds on things above, he's talking about something that is, kind of settled, a position. So I kind of use these two words to kind of understand these better. One is our pursuit of what's above, and one is speaking of our position above. They're both mental words are used several times in Scripture, and especially the word set multiple times in the New Testament just speaks of a mindset. It's a word from which we get the word think. It means to establish our thinking above. And in fact, let me just kind of unpack more of this for you. You see the phrase in your Bibles, it says, seek the things that are above. And then you see the phrase, set your minds on things that are above. The word things is actually not in the original text. Now, it's a good translation. Nothing wrong with it, but you have, to, you have to supply sometimes English words that give the full meaning. But in the most literal rendering, this would say, that up seek. That's what the most literal rendering would be. So you have to kind of supply some missing words, and so we come up with that which is above seek, or that which is above set. But if you just took the literal words of the Greek New Testament, it would say this. That up seek, that up set. In other words, you could easily say this. He's not trying to get you to focus on the things that are above. See, some folks say, well, what are the things above? Let's find the list of them. He's not focusing on a list. He's focusing on a location. He's saying the point of your existence here is to be mindful about what's up there and who's up there. That's why he says in the phrase, Seek those things that are above where Christ is. He's now identifying this location. He's not calling for some atmospheric existence, right? Oh, I'm just walking around aware of what's above me, the clouds in the sky. You float around. That person might be too heavenly minded, okay? But they're not heavenly minded, they're just atmospheric minded. <laughs> He's speaking here of someone whose thinking and whose aim, whose focus is where Christ is. That's the heavenly, where, where God dwells. And so it's, it's not a list of things to do. He's not trying to get at that. He's saying the location where, where your relationship is sourced, where God dwells and where Christ is seated, that's where you should set your minds. That's what you should seek after. These are the imperatives of the passage. So it's a command. And it's very similar to 2 Corinthians 4.18 where Paul told those Corinthian believers this. He said, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Interesting, isn't it? Paul uses the idea of our eyes in 2 Corinthians 4 to ask us to do something in regards to what can't be seen with our eyes. He says to fix our eyes on what is eternal, not temporary. Same idea as Colossians 3. We're to seek after, set our minds on what's above, what's eternal. So it's not just a command, it's also a correction. Now, now this, is, this is where we'll kind of understand how they were falling into the trap of wrong thinking. They, they were thinking in the opposite of the heavenly. You say, well, Todd, what's that look like? Look back in chapter 2 with me, would you? Colossians 2, look about verse 21. You see, they wanted a list, didn't they? They wanted a list, such as, it says here, these regulations known as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. These are based on human precepts and teachings. And look at verse 23. Have, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. In other words, you may think that for a moment 
All of these outward listing kind of commands will help you get traction. They will help you grow. But the truth is, look at the last phrase. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You actually are just spinning your wheels if you think that a list of man-made rules birthed out of human thought and precept will get you anywhere spiritually. And so I contend that this was a corrective set of verses as well as a commanding one. Paul is arguing for a mindset that is heavenly, eternal, not one rooted in lists provided by men. And you see what's happening here is there's a contrast here, guys. In chapter 2, 20 through about 23, is it? That's an outside-in type of approach to traction, isn't it? Let's find a list. Let's see if we can embrace it, and let's see if it will change us. But in the end, we find that it really does nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Nothing inside has ever changed. And so we're just kind of white-knuckling ourselves on the treadmill, hoping we can keep up, but we finally grow tired, and we step off again. Catch our breath, and let me try something else. Get back on this treadmill or that treadmill. But in chapter 3, he says, here's a better way. Set your minds on what's in heaven where Christ is. In other words, fix your eyes on what's eternal. Let what Christ has done for you change you inwardly. Let your position in Christ affect you so that then you're able to pursue and practice setting your minds and and seeking those things. In other words, it starts inside and works its way outward. This is a beautiful contrast in how the world approaches change and how God says actual change occurs. This is just a beautiful contrast in how we actually gain traction and how many of us try to gain traction. And if your approach is always outside in, worried about lists, you'll be spinning your wheels. But when you think correctly, heavenly, divinely, spiritually, you'll find that it's inside out. And that's when you finally get out of the rut of what he says here, human precepts and teachings and things that have the appearance of wisdom, self-promotion of religion, asceticism, severity to the body. You get out of those ruts and you realize, wow, this is an inside-out deal. This is why verses 20 through 23 is a trap. Because you think you're making progress, don't you? But you're really not. You find later nothing inside's changed. You were thinking it would work, but it didn't. And true biblical thinking, which is heavenly, spiritually minded thinking, is the kind of thinking it takes for us to make traction. Which is why I say to you again, it's not that we're thinking too much about heaven. The hard reality is we think too little about it. That's why many of us aren't growing as we should. We're way more earthly bound than we realize. We're way more carnally and physically rooted than we want to admit. And even this verse, I think at times, I can just kind of sense in your faces and your responses. Many of us are like, Todd, I don't even know what that means to think heavenly. It sounds odd. We're going to talk about that, hopefully, as we unpack this. But just be aware, this is the call, this is the command, and it is corrective. And perhaps it's good for us to be corrected this morning. So that's the what. Essentially, that we should fix and focus our mind in heaven. And we should live from there as the starting point. But why can he say this? Let's look at the two whys, okay? They're in verse 1 and then verses 3 and 4. I just mentioned them to you briefly. He says, we've been raised with Christ. Do you see that in verse 1? He says in verse 3, we've died with Christ. He says in verse 3, we were hidden with Christ. And in verse 4, he says, we'll appear with Christ. Now notice what he says here. To all those who are saved, to those who are born again, verse 1, we're raised with Christ. Verse 3, we've died with Christ. We're hidden with Christ. We'll appear with Christ. Every single aspect of your life is either in or with Christ. Do you catch that? Past, present, and future. You've died with Christ. You're hidden with Christ. You're going to appear with Christ. There is no part of your life that's outside of of being in or with Christ if you are a believer. So guess what your real life is? 
your actual real life is in Christ. It's that invisible, almost intangible, heavenly aspect of your, of your life that's the most real. We think it's the flesh and blood, don't we? The car we drive, the house we purchase. But the truth is, the, the realist part of your life is the part that God brought to life when it was dead, that he's hiding and protecting now, that he's keeping safe until he returns and he appears and you will appear with him. That's the realist part of your life. I find some really intense comfort in that. You know why? Because it reminds me of what John said that would never happen to those who are in Christ's hands. He said no one, this is John 10, 28, 29, no one can pluck them from the hand of Jesus. Isn't that great to know? And then he says this in 29, that no one can pluck them out of God's hand. You as a child of God are doubly grasped. You're in Christ's hands and you're in God's hand. So guess what? No one's going to get to you. Isn't that comforting? When the enemy does come at you, when the world, the flesh, and the devil come after you, guess what? You're in Jesus' hand. You're in the Father's hand. No one's going to pluck you from either of those. You are in Christ. And this is Paul's assertion. Precisely why we can set our minds and affections on what's above. Watch this. Because positionally, we are already there. I need you to think this through. I need you to be willing to engage here. This is much like Ephesians. We are already, past tense, seated in the heavens. You know, Todd, I'm seated in First Sunday Church, Ankeny, Iowa, 317, Southeast Magazine, Brown Chair, Warehouse kind of looking room. I'm seated here. No, you're actually not. Your temporary house known as the tent, which bears your name, John Harris, is. But the real you, the one God sees, the one God has brought to life, is hiding and is uh, keeping safe. That one is seated in the heavenlies. God sees you as in Christ, fully alive, fully protected. That's the real you. And so since the real you is in Christ already, he's saying, go ahead and set your minds there. Put your mind where the real you already is. We can think with a heavenly orientation and perspective. Why? Because in the truest reality, our life is actually already there. Now this is a glorious truth for the children of God. And it is a beautiful invitation for those who have yet to believe. You see, without Christ, one is left unprotected. One is left vulnerable. One is not kept safe. One is not hidden. If this morning... You're well aware that you are not in Christ. You may be curious. You may be moral. You may be nice. But you're not born again. You're not in Christ. You've yet to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way by which you can be reconciled to God. And you know that. But you've been checking out this church, kind of checking out this preacher, checking out these things they say they believe because for some reason you find yourself um, attracted and, and curiously drawn to these things that you know something's not right inside. You may say something's missing, so you just kind of been saying, I should go back to church. I should, I should find God. People say those kind of things. If you know that's your condition, I would say to you this is a stunningly compelling reason to believe. Why, Todd? Because only in Christ are you made alive. 
and kept safe and hidden and protected and not vulnerable. Safe all the way to the end so that when Christ appears, you'll appear with him. Only in Christ is your real life confident and complete. And until that moment, you're still in the grip of death and and the grave. And so I would appeal to you. I would urge you to place the faith the Holy Spirit is giving you this morning in that conviction. Place your faith into the person and the work of Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. Just right now where you're seated, just say, God, I believe that Jesus Christ is your son, that you raised him from the dead. Would you, in your mercy, save me by your grace? And then God will do this, theologically. He'll take you out of the realm of death and darkness, and he will baptize you. He'll place you spiritually into the body of Christ. You will be in Christ instead of outside of Christ, and suddenly you'll have life. You've gone from death to life. You've been raised with Christ. He'll protect you and keep you hidden. It doesn't mean things won't be hard. But it means that in the moments of hardness and difficulty, you'll know the, what's going on behind the scenes and what's ahead. And when Christ appears, you'll appear with him. That's, that's where real life is. Oh, I would just compel you, if you have yet to believe in Jesus, This is a beautiful invitation to do exactly that. So here it is again. Just the opposite of what we've heard, isn't it? It's not that we're too heavenly minded, is it? It's that we're not heavenly minded enough. Do you feel the weight of this text? Are you beginning to kind of see how it kind of just wraps itself around us and just confines us to like, wow, I'm, I'm way more earthly rooted than I want to admit. I mean, that's what I've been kind of in for the last couple of weeks. Like, wow, I don't think about eternity enough. I'm more temporal than I want to admit. More physical than I want to admit. More attached than I want to admit. Is anybody else thinking I'm with me in that? You can admit it. Honestly, you can. <laughs> this verse is just so delightful now and so promising and so beautiful to us. That we don't want to lean to the tr- into, into the traps that society presents to us or even false versions of Christianity that, hey, do these three things, handle these eight things, uh, go after these ten. This list will satisfy you. What satisfies us is a person, a relationship. He's in heaven. Let's set our minds there. That's where our life actually is anyway. And that empowers us to do exactly that. Set our minds on things above. Seek that which is above. To be so heavenly minded that actually we then become of great earthly good. You see, here's the stark reality. You aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. You aim at earth and you miss both. Let me illustrate with a diagram. I have formulated several of these for this current series called Traction. Here's another one. This time we'll use a person walking. We won't use the car, okay? Here's someone trotting on the path of life, we'll call it. And my point in this diagram is simply say this, that as we trod here, we should think about there. Can you say that with me? As we trod Here, we should think about there. So here we are. We're trotting. We're walking. But our minds are fixed. They're set. Our affections, our way of thinking, our perspectives, our philosophies, they are in the heavenlies where Christ is. So everything is filtered by Christ and His Word, who He is, what He's done, that's, that's how we see everything. Our mind is fixed on where our actual real life is. But watch this. How can that happen? Because down here, aren't we just vulnerable and being attacked? Isn't life difficult and hard? The truth is, he's saying that where Christ is has already occurred in us. And so actually, we're in Christ. So we're not just trotting the path of life alone. We're trotting down here 
actually protected by, fully engulfed by Christ, indwelt by Christ, which enables us to do what? Think about up there. So it's, it's really this two-way thing happening. We're called to set our minds on Christ, where he is, on the heavenly, to think in that fashion, but it's only possible because Christ has already done with us what only he can do. He has, he has uh, saved us and made us alive and raised us and he's hiding us. He's protecting us. So this is really a, a very scriptural understanding of your trod down here. And why can your pastor now call upon you to think about up there while you're trotting down here? It's because Christ is in you, around you, engulfing you. He, 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 he is all of your life down here as well. And so when he calls you to think about where he is, that's what empowers that. Now, there's a name for this concept. I didn't think of it. I'm not that smart, all right? But this is a doctrine that we hold to, and I want to apologize to you for something. I don't think in 14 years I've ever taught on this doctrine. Now, I have indirectly mentioned it, but I just need to confess to you, I, I've dropped the ball in that area. I should have been much more um, alert and brought to you this doctrine. We're not shy on doctrine around here. I don't think we're light on it at all. But uh, just in the last few weeks, I've realized this is really the doctrine of, of union with Christ. And I don't think I've ever brought that specific concept to you. And so, first of all, forgive me. Short-sighted as, as that was, forgive me. Um, this is really the doctrine of union with Christ. And maybe you've not heard of that. It is tied into other doctrines. Um, but there are books written about this. There are volumes that have written on this, Okay. This is a theological concept and doctrine that we hold to. Union with Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. There is union. And this is really what's being driven at in verses 1, 3, and 4, which is why we can then apply verse 2. We can set our minds and seek things that are above where Christ is because we are in union with Him. Now, the point of this message is not the doctrine of the union with Christ. Okay, uh, We'll need to cover that at some point. But I wanted to get it on your radar at least and at least let you know that from a very, very brief summary that this doctrine deals with, it, with primarily three things. There's more, but I would just say three things are dealt with in this doctrine that you'll want to know. The, the union with Christ really helps us with our identity. Who are we? Our maturity. How do we grow? And then our victory uh, and eternity. So we, how, what, what is the end like? All of those are really affected by union with Christ. And I would say for most people, when you understand the doctrine of union with Christ, it will affect your identity in such a way that both men and women are massively encouraged out of, and I'm going to use this phrase, pardon me, it's not the best one to use, but out of just low kind of self-esteem issues. They're motivated out of like comparison traps. And using other people to kind of gauge who they are and how successful they are or if they're worth something. When you realize that our union with Christ settles our identity, man, it just abolishes. It just demolishes earthly wrong thinking that's based in comparison. And who doesn't need that? Amen. And I'm especially thinking here of young moms who live in a world that Julie, when we had our young kids, didn't live in. We did not live in the world of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and, and um, Pinterest where every day your existence is almost an existence of comparison. Like, well, I'm just not as good as she is. I don't have a house quite that decorated that nice. I don't have that latest thing. I don't have... And suddenly you can become thinking, who am I? What am I worth? What's going wrong with me? And you've forgotten that union with Christ settles every bit of that. That's just one example. You can talk to young men. You can talk to older men and older women. I'm just saying, guys, this doctrine, though I've not brought it to you like I should have in these first 14 years, and I want to do better at that in this doctrine, let me simply say that, especially in regards to your identity, this is one of the key doctrines. We'll try to provide some more this week on our social platform as well as in some places, maybe some links to where you can learn more about that. 
But that's really what's in play here is union with Christ. One of the best verses about this is Galatians 2.20, and it really resonates and mirrors Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Look at this verse with me, would you? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Sounds like when he said in Colossians 3 that we are dead with Christ, right? It's no longer I who live. You're saying, well, I thought we were living. Well, you're not really living. Who's living in you? Christ is living in you. See, union with Christ and the life that I now live, but I thought you said you weren't living, Paul. This is why union with Christ is such a hard thing to teach sometimes. Paul says, I'm not living it. Christ is, but yet I'm living it. I'm living it in the flesh, but I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This verse just kind of encapsulates union with Christ, and it forms the basis for, for what Paul is saying in Colossians 3, too, that to think rightly, watch this, to pursue the right things mentally, you have to understand your position. Position first, then pursuit. That's why he says in those words, seek what's above, set your minds on above. But how can you do that? Because your position, your real life is already there. You're in Christ. He's in you. There's union. So you can think heavenly. You can think divinely, internally. And in fact, you should. And you should think more heavenly, more divinely, more eternally. Why? Because the more you think like Colossians 3, 2, the more earthly good you will actually do. And so the point of setting the foundation with this doctrine and then showing us what to do in light of it is to convince us, and here's our take-home truth today, that being heavenly-minded is the avenue by which we actually gain earthly traction. In fact, listen very carefully to your pastor. All other thinking is a trap. It will deceive you and make you believe, oh, I'm making progress. But you'll find, as as Colossians 2.23 says, that it actually did nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh. You just thought you were following a list of rules. Don't touch, don't handle, don't taste. You'll find yourself weeks, months, years later like, wow, what was all that for? I'm worn out from trying so hard. That's where moralism always leaves you. But when you realize that Christ has done something already for us, positioned us in the heavenlies, settled our destiny, paid our debt, And so we now fix our minds on that. That kind of eternal perspective and thinking, that's actually the avenue by which we gain earthly traction. There is no trap or backdoor approach in that. And so I'm appealing to you this morning not to think you could ever be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I'm appealing to you to refuse that man-made pseudo-biblically sounding advice and to actually embrace this. The more heavenly minded you are, the greater earthly good you are. Now I suspect you may be wondering, Todd, how does this work in real life? That's a lot of doctrine. It's a lot of theology. That's kind of what we do here. I get it, but man... Do you have some tracks we could run on with this? I do. Can I briefly share with you three examples of how this plays out? Maybe some shoe leather moments for you. That if you don't think eternally, if you're not thinking with a heavenly mindset, if your orientation, perspective, and philosophy isn't where Christ is, you'll find it to be a trap ultimately. First of all, I think this is especially relevant in regards to suffering. And yes, death. Paul says in Romans 8, as well as in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, that our sufferings in this life are working an eternal weight of glory. Did you catch that? So if what you're going through down here that seems extremely difficult isn't doing something in the next life, then you should wonder, like, man, what's the point? Let's just pack this in and go home. 
But the truth is, God assures us and promises that what's happening in eternity with our sufferings actually makes what we're going through now seem, what's this? This is counterintuitive. Momentary and light. This is hard to think this way. But if you don't, you'll fall into the trap of thinking that, oh, well, I guess it's up to me to create a list of things I should do and not do. No. What God is saying is that your sufferings, and I'm not making light of them or dismissing them, but you know what they're doing? They're working something in eternity that's, that, that on the positive side, on the glorious end, is so much heavier than even what you feel is going on in the moment. It's working an eternal weight of glory to God that when that's revealed, it will make what's happening here seem light and momentary. You don't endure and you won't endure suffering if you don't have that type of thinking. I was with Bev DeWard yesterday at her bedside. From all we can tell, she has days to live. We left family camp after a few hours there is all, and we went to the DeWards house, Julie and I did, and, and uh, she's just in bed, and it's the, it's the end, unless the Lord intervenes in some way. Uh, it, from a physical aspect, it was sad. And she looked at me, and she said, Todd, I am ready to meet Jesus. Her and Bob had some sweet moments. We cried and prayed together. If you're Bob DeWard, and if you're Bev Bev DeWard, you don't endure those moments if you're not thinking about eternity. You see, without an eternal type of thinking, without setting your minds on things above, you don't endure suffering well. And you surely don't handle death well. Here's another area in which I think this type of theology really intersects with real life. I'll be even very specific here. It's in how we give to God's work. Let me give you an example. Over two years ago, we came to you with a request, so to speak, a goal. Can we raise an extra $100,000 for missions? We currently give in the neighborhood of one hundred ten, twenty thousand towards missions when all said and done each year uh, in different ways. Um, we wanted to double that. Well, when those two years were up, we got to about 40000 So the first of this year, the finance team said, Todd, we can give an extra 40000 to our mission endeavors. And so most of that went to our current partners, and some went to some who are, are going to the field this year. So we kind of wanted to make sure we had enough for them. But there was a section, of, a portion of that that we allocated to um, a church planting school in the Sudan, right in the middle of a refugee camp. In fact, we had investigated them and checked them out. Dave Nelson and I went to see their work in India a few years ago, TTI. And we're really pleased with with how they are utilizing nationals and training nationals over a two-year period then to plant churches within that area. And so we took about $7,500 out of that $40,000. We made a two-year commitment is all to helping plant a school in the Sudan in a refugee camp where they will train over a two-year period 24 church planters who will, in a refugee camp of over at least uh, two to 300,000 refugees in Sudan, they'll go out and plant churches and make disciples. And you say, Todd, why do we spend $7,500 in the Sudan? It's because it is very wise and beneficial to do what we can to get the gospel to those who have yet to hear where it has the least access currently, Right? We didn't put a ton of money there. But what motivates people to do that? What kind of targeted us? Eternal thinking, that souls matter. Some of that money, of course, has gone to help those who from this church are in the pipeline. We want to invest in them and be a really solid sending church. And you could say this, well, Todd, we could have taken that 40000 and put it to the east entrance. We could have, you're right. Or we could take that and we could maybe... Uh, buy new chairs that, that need replacing. They got rips in them. We could. That wouldn't be a sin. You're right. We could do a lot of things with that. But you know what I would say to you? Is that it's actually more than okay. It's right to think, how can we take portions of what God's given us here and use it to get the gospel in places where there's very little access? That's actually healthy and wise. How can we 
help the gospel to speed ahead. And so we did that. I'm excited next year maybe to take a trip over to Sudan. Now, I'm not sure who's going to join me. I'm not sure I'm ready to go, but we'll try it, right? We've got some good guides. It's kind of a dangerous area. But perhaps God will send two or three of us there to see how the church planting efforts there are going. We invest a good bit of money each year in seeing our partners across the globe. That, that happens because the mindset isn't just about the here and now. The mindset is about the hereafter. Now, that's how as a corporate gathering, so to speak, as a collective organism, we want to spend some of God's money that he allows us to have. Let me ask you a question. How are you investing what God's given you? In fact, let me just be really just kind of street leather, uh, shoe leather with you. Is all your money going to the here and now? Or are you actually giving sacrificially to and through the local church. You say, Todd, I can't afford to. Man, dance class costs a bunch. And soccer, and then basketball, and then, and you know, those are legitimate expenses. I don't think there's a sin in those things. I really don't. The sin is in prioritizing them above what's actually eternally significant as well. I tend to think you can do both, but it calls for some discernment and sacrifice at times. Are you with me? My question is, have you traded a heavenly pursuit for an earthly one in your finances? Now, I don't know if that's one of the reasons that we are behind financially this year. A lot of you have watched and you've seen. This is the longest stretch that our church has ever gone in a financial shortfall. Do you know that? We've been kind of watching it. Um, And so I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not. I'm trying to be honest with you. And I'll say more in September. I'll take two weeks in September and just kind of talk about this issue of not just the finances, but I think just maybe the church in general. We'll talk about it. But I'll just ask you to consider, have you grown complacent maybe? And have you grown earthly-minded in how you give to where, you know what, there really is no sacrifice to your investments in regards to what's eternal. It's just all temporal. I would say... Until we start thinking like Colossians 3, 2 says, seeking what's above, setting our minds on things above, we will struggle to give sacrificially. But when we set our minds on things above, when we start thinking with heavenly philosophies and perspectives and strategies and orientations, then we have a looser grip. And sacrifice, though still difficult, becomes our pursuit. So in suffering, it requires heavenly mindset. In giving, it requires a heavenly mindset. Lastly, watch this. I don't know how to word this well, but I want to use the word in sinning. (laughs) What I actually mean is in fighting sin. Because if you're not aware of your position in Christ, if you're not aware that you're already more than a conqueror, Paul said, that you actually fight from faith, not for faith. You don't fight sin to get something. You actually fight sin because Christ has already made you something. You are a victor. You're more than a conqueror. So in your struggle against sin, you can name that sin. Maybe it's pornography. Shopping. Maybe it's overeating. Maybe it's trying to be too healthy and in shape and you adore your body in the mirror. Maybe your exercise exercise is your idol. Maybe the buffet line is your idol. Maybe it's TV or comfort or vacations or traveling or possessions or technology. Name, your, name the thing you love as you fight that, as you try to kill that sin, not manage it, as you try to strike down those idols. You will not be able to fight well if you're not thinking with a heavenly mindset. That your position is already there in Christ. You're fighting from faith. That's why John would say later in 1 John, this is our victory, even our faith. And so if you wonder if Colossians 3, 1 through 4, seeking things and setting our minds on things above, if you think, well, that doesn't matter. Yeah, it matters in three really shoe leather kinds of ways. In our suffering, 
in our generosity and in our struggle against sin. And unless you think with this mindset and get out of the trap of wrong thinking and into the, uh, the power of thinking on where Christ is, you will always struggle in suffering. You'll always struggle with generosity and you'll always struggle in struggling against sin. So, Todd, what do we do? We come back to our take-home truth. We humbly submit to what God is saying. That it is being heavenly-minded that actually gives us earthly traction. I provided the definitions for you here. Being heavenly-minded is thinking with an eternal orientation based on my union with Christ. It's letting your position drive your pursuits. It's seeing that Christ has given you power in himself. And then utilizing that power to then live your daily and practical life. So yes, I'm asking you today to fix your eyes on Jesus. To think heavenly and eternally. To stop spinning your wheels on the earthly-minded, soul-decaying, joy-robbing, heart-rotting pursuits that will ultimately fade away. And to set your affections on who is above. Now that response card is in front of you, isn't it? I want to ask if you would do me a favor. And when you just jot down there, if the Lord has led you in this way, one area in which you want to think eternally. It may be one of the three we mentioned. It could be in suffering. In generosity, maybe in your fight against sin, it may be another area. But if you just take that response card, jot your name, and jot one area, I want to pray for you this week by name in specific ways. That's all I'm asking for you today. The Holy Spirit will take His Word and continue to change our thought pattern so that we are thinking so heavenly minded that we are of great earthly good. Amen, church? Because after all, I want to aim at heaven and get earth thrown in. Don't you? I don't want to aim at earth and miss both. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons. Thanks for listening.